and welcome to City Breaks Bath, episode 11, a Bath anthology. While I've been preparing the series, there have been so many extracts from travel writers, history writers, works of fiction that I would like to have included here and there where they were relevant, but which got squeezed out by the things I did use. And so I've designed an episode specifically to squeeze a few more of those in. Bath is a special place, such a particular place that I think people who go there are often moved to write about it. And likewise, there are scenes from Bath in quite a surprising number of works of fiction. So let's sit back and enjoy a good few of those. I'm going to start with travel diaries and pieces written long, long ago. 1572, in fact, in the case of the first one. When one John Jones visited the city, and then wrote a sort of 16th century how-to guide to getting the most out of your visit. What to expect. What the rules were. For example, on going to the baths. I'm going to read a couple of extracts. The spelling is quite 16th century, fair enough, so I'll do my best with the reading out. If the pronunciation sounds a bit odd, it's probably because that was how it was written. OK, so here he is on the rules for cleansing yourself before you go anywhere near the bath water. Quote, Every person going into the baths must first cleanse he bodies from superfluities. All persons affected or grieved by journey shall not forthwith enter the baths, but shall first rest their bodies by the space of a day or two, yea, or more. There's more advice on emptying your belly before you get in, how to drink the water, and then this. So if anybody was wondering exactly how deep in the water to sit, or what the rules for behaviour might be, which I think we can summarise in more 21st century language than he uses as no sex and no snoozing. Or indeed, if you're wondering what to do after you've got out of the baths, he has advice on all of these things. Quote, If ye parts under ye midriff be grieved, sit up to ye navel. But if ye parts above the navel be diseased, sit in unto the neck. See that altogether while ye be there, and longer, ye avoid copulation, that is, the use of women. When you come out, cover yourselves with clothes, then go to bed, and sweat is convenient, but in the bath abstain from slumbering. It's good advice. The snooze in the bath does sound dangerous. Samuel Pepys was there too, just over a century later, 1668 to be precise and he too wants to tell you how to get the most out of your visit. He informs us that he got up at four o'clock, because he'd heard that baths got busy later in the day, and was determined to be early. Not least because he thought the water might be cleaner. OK, so here he is on that. Quote, and by and by, though we designed to have done before company came, much company came, very fine ladies, and the manner pretty enough, only methinks it cannot be clean to go so many bodies together to the same water. Obviously a lot of other people had got up at four o'clock too and they were all there early. Oh well. Another point he makes is how hot the water was, much hotter than he'd expected. Quote, Strange to see how hot the water is, and in some places, though this is the most temperate bath, the spring's so hot as the feet not to endure. But the strange to see what women and men herein that live all the season in these waters that cannot but be parboiled and look like creatures of the bath. I think the modern description for that might be boiled like a lobster. And then in common with other writers that I've read on this subject, what seemed to happen when you'd finished in the bath 
was that you'd be wrapped up in a sheet and carried home, I think often on a bath chair, so that you could rest. Quote, Carried back, wrapped in a sheet and in a chair. Home to bed, seating for an hour, and by and by comes music to play to me, extraordinary good, as ever I heard at London almost anywhere. There are other writers I came across who described spending two or three hours sleeping and resting at home after their session at the bath, so tiring did it seem to have been. That intrepid lady traveller Celia Fiennes was in Bath about 20 years after Pepys in 1687, and she too had advice for people who hadn't been yet and wanted to know what was what. One thing she's keen for us to know is that it's a good place to take a walk. Quote, the places for diversion about the bath is either the walks in that they call the King's Mead, which is a pleasant green meadow, where are walks round and across it. She was also one to indulge in a little tourism, pointing out that a nice thing to do in the city is to walk round the abbey, actually she calls it the cathedral, and then to go and have some refreshment somewhere. So quite exactly what you might do yourself, getting on for 350 years later. Quote, there is also pleasant walks in the cathedral, in the cloisters. Out of the cathedral, you walk into the priory, which has good walks of rows of trees, which is pleasant. The abbey is lofty and spacious, and much company walk there, especially in wet weather. In that king's mead, there are several little cake houses, where you have fruit sullybubs and liqueurs, to entertain the company that walks there. Perhaps she's referring to Sally Lunds. Or if not, and certainly to some establishments which must have been quite similar. The writer and philanthropist Hannah Moore was in Bath in 1797, and she wrote about the number of distinguished people that she came across in the city. She was staying in Great Pulteney Street, where she discovered she was near neighbours with the Duke and Duchess of York, and in fact they weren't the only royalty that she came across while she was there. Quote, Bath was never so gay, Princes and kings that will be, and princes and kings that have been, pop upon you at every corner. The Stadtholder, by that she means King William V of Orange, who was in exile in England. The Stadtholder and Prince of Wales only on a flying visit, but their highnesses of York are become almost inhabitants, and very sober and proper their behaviour is. The Duchess contributes by her residence in it to make our street alive. So that would have been Prince Frederick, the younger brother of the Prince Regent, George, who was going to go on and be George IV. His younger brother was Frederick, married, I believe, to one Princess Frederica from Prussia. And this was the Duke of York about whom the nursery rhyme was written, the grand old Duke of York, the one who had 10,000 men and marched them up and down all the hills he could find. So just an idea then that the great and the good was certainly to be seen in Bath in the 18th century. Another example of that, in fact, is Admiral Nelson, who spent a number of periods of time in the city and who became really quite well known there. He managed on one of his campaigns abroad to contract yellow fever and he came to Bath in the hope of a cure, was put on quite a demanding regime, which he described as follows. I have been so ill since I have been here that I was obliged to be carried to and from bed with the most excruciating tortures. I am physicked three times a day, drink the waters three times, and baths every other night, besides not drinking wine, which I think is the worst of all. He 
was there for several months in the winter of 1780 to 1781. We know that he went to the theatre, saw Mrs. Siddons on stage. But after a few months, he was fit enough to leave. He came back a few years later with his new wife, and a third time when he'd just been promoted to the rank of admiral, and in fact on that occasion he was made a freeman of the city. He was back in Bath a few years later, after the amputation of his right arm, again hoping for rest and treatment. He stayed a few weeks, I think, but in the end transferred to London, because they thought that actually there he would get even better treatment. And on his last visit, which was in 1798, he went to the theatre in Orchard Street, where he was greeted by a standing ovation. Everybody got to their feet and sang a spontaneous version of Rule Britannia. And there were further honours after his death because several streets were renamed in honour of him. Nelson Place, Nelson Street, for example. Moving forward to the 20th century, somebody else who spent time in Bath was the writer H.M. Bateman. In fact, one of his books was actually called Bath Past and Present. And there are lots of little cameos in that about how he found the life there. In one of them, he's very keen to stress that he finds it rather an elderly city, and therefore somewhere you're more likely to enjoy if you're getting on in years a little. And this is what he wrote about that. It is an old place in every sense of the word, from the age of its foundation to the average age of the people one sees walking or being born upon its streets. It may even be described as a temple of antiquity. There are more antique shops to the hundred yards here than I know of in any other town in England. It is just the place in which to run earth that piece of old silver you have been hunting all your life, or to acquire the nice little specimens of bric-a-brac that warm the cockles of your discriminating heart. I think there might be something in the idea that older people are going to be attracted to Bath because of its elegance, its architecture, its history, but I don't think it's true to say that it's only a town for the elderly. It's really quite lively with its buskers, its contemporary art scene, and its many independent shops. So don't let Mr Bateman put you off and persuade you that you can't enjoy yourself there unless you're getting on in years. Another extract I came across is where he's describing a conversation that he heard in the Grand Pump Room. A lady visitor has arrived. She's probably there for the first time, he thinks. She's a little bit unsure, and so she asks one of the attendants what the water's going to be like. Will it, she wants to know, be objectionable? Not at all, madam, the uniformed attendant reassured her. It is a little warm and has a slight taste, that is all. And then he goes on to explain that he thinks, actually, it's a very nice way to pass a morning, to sit in the pump rooms, take the water and enjoy the atmosphere. Quote, What could be more pleasant and soothing for the aged or delicate than to enter this impeccable pump-room, receive the daily quota of water from the hands of a purple-clad damsel, and to sip it, sitting meanwhile upon a Sheraton settee, perusing the current illustrated journals, or perhaps dealing with one's correspondence, at one of the writing-tables so thoughtfully provided. So, the words of a whole host of travellers who went to Bath, and were keen to tell you what they thought about it. The next book I've chosen can span the two areas of travel writing and fiction, because it's kind of both. It's a book called The Expedition of Humphrey Clinker, published in 1771 and written by Tobias Smollett. And it's a book of letters. It's got, I think, five or six characters who are travelling around England, and each of them writes letters 
from which we learn about what they've been doing and what they thought of it, and actually also learn a great deal about each of their very different characters. So it is fiction, but it's written up almost as if it were a travel guide. And one of the letter writers is one Matthew Bramble, who was pretty cutting on a number of topics, and not least on the sort of person you meet if you go to Bath. He was very much of the opinion that a lot of these people had newly made money, probably from dubious origins, and didn't really have any idea how to behave. In fact, he makes it quite clear that he suspects some of them have made their money from the slave trade. I think it's interesting to note that somebody was writing so directly about that as early as 1770, because most people at the time either didn't know, or if they did, certainly weren't talking about it and being honest about it. OK, so here's his description of the sort of person you might meet in Bath. Every upstart of fortune, harnessed in the trappings of the mode, presents himself at Bath as if in the very focus of observation. Clerks and factors from the East Indies, loaded with the spoil of plundered provinces. Planters, negro drivers and hucksters from our American plantations, enriched they know not how. And he goes on to describe how he thinks they've come to Bath now that they've got a bit of money, hoping to do some social climbing, really, to meet the genuinely great and good, and somehow make their way into the upper echelons of society. Quote, Knowing no other criterion of greatness but the ostentation of wealth, they discharge their affluence without taste or conduct, through every channel of the most absurd extravagance, and all of them hurry to Bath, because here, without any further qualification, they can mingle with the princes and nobles of the land. Actually, he doesn't have much good to say about the less well-off either, talking about the wives and daughters of tradesmen as, for example, quote, shovel-nosed sharks who prey upon the blubber of those uncouth whales of fortune. It really is quite a read. I do recommend it. Moving then into the realm of fiction proper, here's an extract from a novel called Monsieur Beaucaire, published in 1900, and written by one Booth Tarkington. Some of the characters are off to the assembly rooms for the evening, and so he decides to open with a description of the man greeting everybody as they arrive, who else but Bonash. He's writing, of course, a century after Bonash died, so this is all imagined, but it does read as if he's done his research. So this is how he introduces him. Quote, Beau Nash stood at the door of the rooms, smiling blandly upon a dainty throng in the pink of its finery. The great exquisite bent his body constantly in a series of consummately adjusted bows, before a great dowager seeming to sweep the floor in august deference. Somewhat stately to the young bucks, greeting the wits with gracious friendliness and a twinkle of raillery, inclining with fatherly gallantry before the beauties, the degree of his inclination measured the altitude of the recipient as accurately as a nicely calculated sand glass measures the hours. It's lovely, isn't it, because he sounds very welcoming, and yet you know that that very precisely measured bow for each of the people arriving, dependent on really what they could do for him or how important they were, tells us that Bonash was a lot more than just a smiling meter and greeter. He goes on then to describe Bonash watching everything that goes on. And there's some very fancy language describing the distinguished visitors, some of whom are of royal blood. A French prince, for example, accompanied by Louis XV's ambassador. And after lots of very flowery language, 
The paragraph ends with the sentence, what was better, there would be some profitable hours with cards and dice. So a nice reminder that Bonash, who seems to be just the socialite who wants everybody to have a lovely time, was in fact profiting from the gambling which was one of the main entertainments at the assembly rooms. And he finishes that scene as follows. So it was that Mr Nash smiled never more benignly than on that bright evening. The rooms rang with the silvery voices of women and delightful laughter, while the fiddles went merrily, their melodies chiming sweetly with the joyance of his mood. So a very bath description, social chatter, music, etc. But all the while, Mr Nash's coffers are filling up. In an H.G. Wells novel called Secret Places of the Heart, published in 1933, there's a lovely description of some characters taking an evening stroll down in the very centre of Bath, round the Abbey and on Pulteney Bridge. They had arrived in Bath earlier in the day, been not really that impressed with the outskirts, had gone to their hotel and changed, go out for a little stroll, and it's then that they realise how beautiful the city actually is. This is how he describes it. Sir Richard and Miss Grammont went out into the moonlight gloaming. They crossed the bridge again, and followed the road beside the river towards the old abbey church, that lantern of the west. Away in some sunken gardens ahead of them, a band was playing, and a cluster of little lights about the bandstand showed a crowd of people down below, dancing on the grass. These little lights, these bobbing black heads and the lilting music, made the dome of the moonlit world about it seem very vast and cool and silent. Our visitors began to realise that Bath could be very beautiful. They went to the parapet above the river and stood there, leaning over it, elbow to elbow, and smoking cigarettes. Miss Grammont was moved to declare the Pulteney Bridge with its noble arch, its effect of height over the swirling river, and cluster of houses above, more beautiful than the Ponte Vecchio at Florence. Down below was a man in waders, with a fishing rod, going to and fro along the foaming weir, and a couple of boys paddled a boat against the rush of the water, lower down the stream. If you know Bath, you'll very much recognise that description, standing on the bridge, looking out over the weir, across to Parade Gardens, just a little further behind. Exactly the place where, still today, people go for entertainment and relaxation. Perhaps a deck chair and some refreshments in the daytime. The bandstand there is still certainly in use, on occasions at least. I don't know whether evening events are held there but I think they may well be. And all of this against the backdrop of the hills around the city, which you can also see from the bridge. Somebody else who wrote, but in a very different way, about the beauty of Bath, was the poet laureate John Betjeman, who loved the city and got very steamed up in the post-war period when a lot of building was done and, as he saw it, much of the beauties of the old Bath were destroyed. So here's some of the earlier part of the poem when he's describing all the things that he loves about the city. And then after that, we'll move on and I'll read you the bit where he lambasts the developers for the wreck that they have caused. OK, so this is what he liked about Bath. Proud city of Bath, with your crescents and squares, your hoary old abbey and playbills and chairs, your plentiful chapels where preachers would preach, and a different doctrine expounded in each, your gallant assemblies where squires took their daughters, your medicinal springs where their wives took the waters, the terraces trim and the comely young wenches, the cobbled back streets with their privies and stenches, 
How varied and human did Bath then appear, as the roar of the Avon rolled up from the weir. So, okay, it's mostly lovely, but with a nod to the idea that the back streets were perhaps not quite as lovely. But that I think he could accept. What he really didn't like was when the builders moved in and Bath was modernised. A dreadfully ugly, or as he saw it anyway, new technical college was built. He didn't think much of the houses either. Quote, New houses are units and people are digits, and Bath has been planned into quarters for midgets. And the last two lines of the poem are quite well known. Goodbye to old Bath, we who loved you are sorry. They're carting you off by developer's lorry. But please don't let that put you off. Of course it's true that there are modern buildings as well, in and around Bath, but it's also true that after that poem was written, a lot of restoration and cleaning work was done on all the old buildings of the city in the 1980s and 90s. So buildings which had rather blackened with grime and soot over the centuries suddenly regained their beautiful golden appearance. And even if you can spot the odd building that you think's a bit too modern to fit in, I don't think you can say that Bath hasn't still got the elegance and charm that it had in the 18th century. And to finish the episode, I'm going to return to two authors whom we have already quoted, perhaps the two best-known authors who wrote about Bath, and that would be Charles Dickens and Jane Austen. We have to give the last word to Jane, of course, so let's start with Dickens and a little extract from Pickwick Papers. There are several chapters, I think it's chapters 34 and 5 or thereabouts, in the novel where the characters all come down to Bath. Dickens must certainly have been familiar with the city and its ways because he knows all about it. He knows, for example, that when the characters arrive, somebody will arrive to check them out and make sure they do the right things or point out that they have to enter their names into the Register of Distinguished Visitors in Bath, which is kept at the pump room. And it's made pretty clear that they need to get down there quite soon and do that. Mr Dowler, who's come to call on them, is going to take them there himself, which might be code for make sure they follow instructions. But he also wants them to make the most of Bath and enjoy themselves. He explains, for example, that that very night is ball night and tells them a little about what they can expect. Quote, The ball nights in Bath are moments snatched from paradise, rendered bewitching by music, beauty, elegance, fashion, etiquette, and, above all, by the absence of tradespeople, who are quite inconsistent with paradise, and who have an amalgamation of themselves at the Guildhall every fortnight, which is, to say the least, remarkable. So very much the idea of the social hierarchy, Mr Pickwick and company are deemed to be acceptable guests at the ball. There are other lesser entertainments for the sort of person you wouldn't want to meet there. And so, of course, the characters do go to the ball. Here's Dickens' description of what they first saw when they got there. In the ballroom, the long card room, the octagonal card room, the staircases and the passages, the hum of many voices and the sound of many feet were perfectly bewildering. Dresses rustled, feathers waved, lights shone and jewels sparkled. As you would expect, he's very good on these sort of characters that are clustering here in the assembly rooms and describes them as follows. In the tea room and hovering round the card tables were a vast number of queer old ladies and decrepit old gentlemen discussing all the small talk and scandal of the day with a relish and gusto which sufficiently bespoke the intensity of the pleasure they derived from the occupation. Mingled with these groups 
were three or four matchmaking mamas, appearing to be wholly absorbed by the conversation in which they were taking part, but failing not from time to time to cast an anxious sidelong glance upon their daughters, who, remembering the maternal injunction to make the best of their youth, had already commenced incipient flirtations in the mislaying scarves, putting on gloves, setting down cups and so forth. Slight matters, apparently, but which may be turned to surprisingly good account by expert practitioners. I very much enjoyed the little instruction given by Mr Dowler on how to take tea in the assembly rooms. Well, he says, what you have to do is, quote, stop in the tea room, take your sixpenneth, lay on hot water and call it tea. Drink it. Then they are joined by a Mr Bantam, described as corkscrewing his way through the crowd to get to them, and a little conversation which I have seen in several anthologies, quite often quoted, I think, which goes like this. My dear sir, I am highly honoured. Bath is favoured. Mrs Dowler, you embellish the rooms. I congratulate you on your feathers. Remarkable. Anybody here? inquired Dowler suspiciously. Anybody? The elite of Bath. Mr Pickwick, do you see the old lady in the gauze turban? The fat old lady, inquired Mr Pickwick innocently. Hush, my dear sir, nobody's fat or old in Bath. That is the dowager Lady Snuffenough. Is it indeed, said Mr Pickwick. No lesser person, I assure you, said the Master of Ceremonies. Marvellous. How to follow that? Well, I think Jane Austen's up to the task. So let's finish with her. This is a little scene which follows on from one I used in a previous episode. You may remember when Catherine and Henry Tilney first meet, their conversation which establishes that yes, she has been to the upper rooms, and yes, she's been to the theatre, and also to the concert, these three events on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday evening respectively, so giving us an idea of the social life in Bath. And Mr Tilney then goes on to say that having established all of that, they can now have a rational conversation. Catherine's not sure whether to laugh or not, and this is what he says then. Quote, I see what you think of me, said he gravely. I shall make but a poor figure in your journal tomorrow. My journal? Yes, I know exactly what you will say. Friday, went to the lower rooms, wore my sprigged muslin robe with blue trimmings, plain black shoes, and appeared to much advantage, but was strangely harassed by a queer, half-witted man who would make me dance with him, and distressed me by his nonsense. Indeed, I shall say no such thing. Shall I tell you what you ought to say? If you please. I danced with a very agreeable young man, introduced by Mr. King. Had a great deal of conversation with him. He seems a most extraordinary genius. I hope I may know more of him. That, madam, is what I wish you to say. But perhaps I keep no journal. Perhaps you are not sitting in this room, and I am not sitting by you. These are points in which a doubt is equally possible. Not keep a journal? How are your absent cousins to understand the tenor of your life in Bath without one? How are the civilities and compliments of every day to be related as they ought to be, unless noted down every evening in a journal? How are your various dresses to be remembered, and the particular state of your complexion and curl of your hair to be described in all their diversities, without having constant recourse to a journal? My dear madam, I am not so ignorant of young ladies' ways as you wish to believe me. So that's Jane Austen's bath, the formal setting, 
the playing out of relationships and beginnings of romance, the gentle poking fun at the ways of many of the people that she met there, but all done quite affectionately. So I think it's only fitting to leave Jane Austen with the last word on Bath, as she is the author most connected with it. So that brings me to the end of this episode, the Bath Anthology, and also to the end of the main set of episodes on Bath itself. There are going to be three more in the series, because I'm going to look at three places where you could enjoyably and fairly easily have a day out if you're in Bath for a few days and would like to just see what else is out there. So we're going to go to Laycock in the next episode. Without exaggeration, one of England's most picturesque little villages. There's an ancient abbey to look round and a delightful little village with lots of quirky, rather old-fashioned looking shops. And both the abbey and the village have been used on many occasions for filming. So if you've seen the film of Elizabeth Gaskell's book Cranford or one of several Jane Austen films, you've probably, without knowing it, been looking at Laycock. And in fact, the Abbey also formed the set on which many of the school scenes at Hogwarts for the Harry Potter films were filmed. It's easy day out from Bath, and so I think very much worth mentioning. As are two other little towns to the south, Wells, so often linked with Bath because of its equally beautiful Abbey. The two have been intertwined over the centuries, and even today, the bishop in charge is the Bishop of Bath and Wells. Bath too is very oldie-worldie, picturesque, again the scene of various film sets, and a lovely place to spend an afternoon or even a whole day. And then finally, we have to go to Glastonbury, because that's within an hour's travel of Bath too. A very particular little town with lots of history and lots of quirks. And so I'll be doing the final episode of the series on that. All of that then to come, but for the moment we have finished, so thank you very much for listening, and goodbye until the next episode.